Have you ever tasted a really good piece of fruit before? Like an apple, an orange, a banana, a grape, something like that. I, I'm not a huge fruit lover, but there are some fruits that I really, really enjoy. Uh, mango. I love mango. I know it's a little odd, but I really do. Um, I like most apples, but my favorite apples are the ones that come from Hendersonville, North Carolina. Uh, there's a, uh, a family orchard we've been going to for many years, and they have a variety of, of golden, delicious apple uh, that I'm almost certain came right out of the promised land. It is just delicious. It doesn't taste anything like what you get in the store. Uh, it's just amazing. Have you ever eaten a piece of fruit like that? And you just thought, man, this is a really, really good piece of fruit. Now, chances are, if you've ever had that experience, you did not stop and say, man, that must have been a great branch that this fruit grew on. You probably didn't say that, did you? Now, you may have complimented the variety of the fruit. I like this particular kind, like a golden delicious apple or something like that. You may have complimented the, uh, the farmer or the farm that it came from. Perhaps you did that. Or more likely nowadays, you probably said to the person who went to the grocery store, you did a good job picking this out of the produce section, right? You've all had that experience. You go and dig through the produce section and half the fruit there is squashed or bruised and it takes some time to find something good. So you may have complimented the person who selected it. But I doubt very seriously that anybody in here, when they ate a really good piece of fruit, ever said, wow, that came from a great branch. We just don't think that way. Because to be honest, the branches get very little praise because the branches have done very little to deserve any praise. I mean, what did it do? It stayed there, stuck to the plant. And then it let a piece of fruit dangle off of it. That's not a huge accomplishment in the grand scheme of things. You know, this raises a very important question. And this question is really one that our entire life hinges on. Who should get the praise for any good thing in your life? Who should get the praise for that? Should you get the praise? Or should, should the people who've invested in your life get the praise? In the illustration of the vine and the branches, here in John chapter 15, Jesus has made it very clear that he is the vine, we are the branches, God the Father is the husbandman. And as we abide in him in close, consistent fellowship, he will work in and through us to produce the fruit in our lives that he wants to see. His life will be flowing through us, working in us to produce the godly actions and attitudes that he wants our lives to have. Now notice with me what John 15 and verse number 8 tells us. As Jesus continues this illustration of the vine and the branches. He says in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. 
so shall ye be my disciples. Jesus is the vine, the Father is the husbandman, we are but the branches. The husbandman, the heavenly husbandman, that is God the Father, he prunes and he purges us to produce fruit in our life. Jesus is the vine, it's through him that spiritual life flows. We are simply the last piece in the chain from which the fruit dangles. And as such, logically, the one who should get the final credit for both the quality and the quantity of any fruit in our life should not be you or me. It should be God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. God should get all the praise for any good in our lives. Because we have nothing good to offer apart from God. We will accomplish nothing good without God. And it's only when our lives are filled with good fruit and giving God the glory that He deserves that we are living as true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us as we examine Your Word today. Help us to understand it. Help, help us to truly hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. Lord, I... I wonder if maybe there's somebody here today who they have never placed their faith in Jesus. They're not a branch of the vine yet. If that's the case, Lord, convict them this morning from your word, by your Holy Spirit, of their sin and their need of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who do know Christ as their Savior, Lord, convict us of those times where we have stolen the glory that is only rightfully yours. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our premise today is this, that abiding in Christ results in a life that glorifies God by producing much fruit, including the fruits of the Spirit and of service and of souls saved. Now, we're going to dissect verse number 8 in detail. So look with me back at our text. Jesus, in continuing this illustration that we've, we've covered in the last some weeks about the vine and the branches, he says, Herein is my Father glorified. He's talked about the branches in him that bear fruit and how the Father purges him, purges them and prunes them. He's talked about the branches that won't bear fruit and how that they wander and they wither and ultimately they are wasted. He's talked about how that if you're abiding in him, his word will abide in you and you'll ask what you will and it will be done for you. He's talked about all of these different aspects of you and I maintaining that vital connection to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now in verse number 8, he begins the summary. He begins to pull it all together and tell us what the major point is. What is the big idea here of being a branch of the vine? And why should we abide in Christ? Verse number 8 really speaks to our motivation. Why we are doing what we are doing. Herein is my Father glorified, he said, that you bear much fruit. Now, in context here, Jesus has already identified who the Father is in this illustration. Look back at verse number 1. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. The husbandman, that was the word for the, the 
took care of the grapevine. He's the vine dresser. He's the one who plants. He's the one who plows. He's the one who fertilizes. He's the one who prunes. He's the one who cares for the entire vineyard. And so in speaking of God the Father as the husbandman, Jesus is, is really highlighting the sovereignty of God in everything, especially in our lives. He is the husbandman. And as Jesus has talked about our vital connection to him, he now brings us back to this, this eternal providential perspective that all of this work that Jesus does in us is ultimately not even for Jesus in the end. It is for the glory of the Father. The Father is the husbandman. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37, Jesus said, Then he said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labor, laborers into his harvest. You realize this morning that everything belongs to God. Everything. I don't, I don't think we really stop to let that sink in sometimes. I think we give lip service to that. As Christians, we'll say, well, of course, you know, God is sovereign. Everything belongs to him. He created everything. But I don't know that we really let that sink in and what that means in our life. You know what that means for you? It means every penny in your wallet or in your purse is God's. It means that the house that you live in, it's God's. Car you drive, clothes you wear, food in your fridge, Belongs to the Lord. Your spouse is not your spouse. In the ultimate sense, they also belong to God. Your children, they belong to the Lord. The plans for your life, ultimately those are God's plans. You understand that every single aspect of the existing universe belongs to God. He is sovereign and in his providence he is working in my life, in your life for one overarching purpose and that is to get glory through us. Some people say, well I don't like that. There's a Hebrew word I will say in response. Tough. That's not really a Hebrew word. Well, it might be, but it's not. So I don't like that. That just, that just doesn't sound right. That, that everything God does doing is for His glory. Guess what? He's God. And the sooner we yield ourselves to the sovereignty of God in our life, as soon as we bow the knee to the King of Kings and say, God, whatever you are doing in, your, in my life, it is good, it is right, it is perfect, and even if it might be uncomfortable, and even if I might not like it in the moment, and even if I don't understand it, you're God, and I'm not. Herein is my Father glorified, the one who does the pruning, the one who does the purging, the one who works with the vine and the branches to produce fruit. Some people never experience the fullness of blessing of truly abiding in Christ because they never fully submit to the sovereignty of the Father in their life. 
It's an issue of surrender. It's an issue of yielding yourself to God. You know, the Lord Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We say, The Lord Jesus Christ. We say, The Lord, as we refer to God. If that is true, then why don't we do whatever, all that he says? It's an issue of yielding ourselves to God. Herein is the Father glorified, he said. Why should Jesus be so emphatic about the Father getting the glory? Because it's God who's done all the work. Let me say that again. It is God who's done all the work. Our flesh hears that and it bristles. You know why? Because we feel like we've done a lot of work. We feel like we've worked hard at this thing called the Christian life. We feel like we've worked hard to do what is right and be right. And we've, we've, we've been through a lot of struggles. And, and so when somebody says, no, actually, that wasn't you. That was God in you. And God through you. It was all of him. Our flesh says, now wait a second. Our flesh will say, okay, okay, okay. If I, I know that, that I need God. I can't do everything, but I mean, didn't I help a little bit? You know, didn't, didn't I do at least something? Even if it's just 1%. Didn't I do at least 1%? The answer is no. And every 1% of credit we take is glory stolen from God. Let's be reminded, what did Jesus say in our text in verse number 5? He said, for without me ye can do 1%, right? Without me you can do 1%, but you need me for the other 99. No, without me ye can do nothing. So why does the Father get all the glory? Why don't the branches get any? Because the branches didn't do any of the work. It was all of God. And none of us. If you want some fancy terms for it, let me give, let me give you a couple of fancy terms. Alright? It's the difference between synergism and monogism. It's hard to say Synergistic means that you're working together. I do a little bit, God does a little bit, and so we get it done. Monergistic means mono, one. All of him and none of me. Herein is the Father glorified. Not herein is the Father and the branches glorified. Herein is the Father glorified. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. He is exalted. He is magnified. He is built up. You know what we want? Let's just be honest, okay? It's just, it's just us here today. Right? We're friends. We can be honest with each other. You know what we want? We want God to get praise from our life. And we want a little bit for us to. Our flesh wants that. We want a little pat on the back. We want a little praise. We want a little bit of attaboy. We want just, just a little. We don't want it all. We don't even want most. Just a little. 
Just a little bit of glory of men. Just a little bit to be seen of men. Just a little bit of the praise of men. Just a little bit of pleasing men. Just a little. That's what we, in our flesh, want. And as long as we have any desire to take credit that is God's alone, we are stealing from God's glory. We deserve none. He deserves it all. So why do you do what you do? Why do you do what is right? We'll say something that may seem counterintuitive to you. Even unsaved people will try to do what is right. Romans chapter 7. Great passage where Paul's talking about how that even in our fleshly nature, even our carnal sinful nature, we will want to do what is right. But why? That's the problem. You see, even an unsaved person will do what is right, or will at least want to do what is right, I should say it that way, for some reasons, like, for instance, because they're tired of dealing with the consequences of doing what is wrong, you know? I keep speeding and I keep getting tickets and now my insurance is going through the roof and I'm tired of, and I'm almost going to lose my license. So you know what? I'm going to obey the speed limit. All right? Is that right or wrong to obey the speed limit? Don't answer that because we live in the driving land. Okay. Now, of course, it's right to obey the laws of the land. You know what? Lots of people do that all the time. Again, not much in Atlanta. But anyway, they obey the laws of the land all the time. Why? Because they don't want to deal with the consequences. I don't want to get a ticket, I don't want to go to jail, I don't want to pay a fine. But sometimes they do it because they want other people to praise them for what they've done and call them a good person. And, and they want to be able to view themselves in a prideful manner thinking that they are good and they are better than others. Why do you do what you do? Why do you come to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you try to be a witness? Why do you be kind to your children? Why are you trying to love your spouse like you should? Why are you trying to be honest? Why are you trying to be a hard worker? Why do you do all of these things? That's a very important question. And this morning, it's the essential question. Because if we're honest, many times we're exactly like even a lost person. We do right because we don't want to deal with the consequences of doing wrong. That's, that's just it. We know if we don't do right, something bad's going to happen, and we don't want to deal with it, so we do what's right just because we don't want to deal with that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that is not a good enough reason. If we're honest, sometimes we do right because we want the praise of men. We want people to see what we did, and we want people to come along and say, you did a good job. And we give honor to whom honor is due. That's, that's a different issue. We're talking about our inward motivations right now. Why do we do what we, we do? Sometimes we do what we do because we want to obtain the blessings. Well, I'm going to do this because there's this thing that I want God to do for me. And we think that God's system works like an earthly economic bartering system. I'll give God obedience, and in exchange, he'll give me blessing. Now, does God bless obedience? Sure. 
graciously has promised to do that. He said, I've set before you a blessing and a curse. Life and death. Choose life. Choose the blessing. Do what's right. But he didn't say do what's right so you can get the stuff. Why do we do what we do? If glorifying God is not our primary motivation, then we are motiv motivated by the wrong thing. We are to be motivated by the glory of God alone. And to whatever degree we are motivated by selfish interests and selfish desires, to that degree we are stealing glory that rightly belongs to God. But this is a hard message for our flesh. I get it. I do. But this is the truth of Scripture. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, say it with me if you know it, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't say do 99% to the glory of God and keep 1% for the glory of self. Does it? Do all to the glory of God. Herein is the Father glorified. Jesus then went on to say that ye, speaking to his disciples, his followers, that ye bear much fruit. Now, I've already touched on the idea of the word bear here. It does not say that ye produce much fruit, does it? There's a different idea here. A branch that is bearing fruit, all it's doing is remaining stationary while the light of the vine flows through it and into the fruit. And the fruit hangs as the branch passively remains. The branch bears the fruit. This is what God wants. He wants your life to bear much fruit. I want you to notice a progression with me. Go back to verse number two. Jesus says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Later, he explains what that looks like in detail in verse number six. But notice the rest of verse two. Every branch that beareth fruit, so here's a fruitful branch, it's got some fruit. Jesus says, the Father will purge it that it may bring forth more fruit. He's going to prune it, he's going to work with it, so that it will go from some fruit to more fruit. But now notice verse number 8, Jesus introduces another level when he says that she bear much fruit. You see the progression here? We have some fruit, we have more fruit, we have much fruit. Now, there's, it's not like there's only three stages of the Christian life. Don't understand, don't misunderstand me this morning. But it's talking about our upward progress and sanctification and as God works in our life. When you're first saved, there's not any fruit. But God begins to work in your life and there comes some fruit. And so you know what God does? He continues to work with you. He works with you closer. He works with you in more detail. He gives you more time, more energy, more focus. And the purpose of that is to produce more fruit. He purges you. He prunes you to bring forth more fruit. And he continues to do that over and over and over again until you get to the point that there is much fruit. See, our problem is we settle for some. What? I'm saved. I'm going to church. 
I didn't rob a bank this week, so isn't that something? There's some fruit in my life, and you know what? We settle for some. You say, well, that's, that's good enough. God's given some fruit for my life, so, and we begin to give our energy to some other pursuit, some other selfish way of living, pleasing us, doing what we want, and we stop right there. And we never reach full maturity. When God wants, wants to take us through processes over time to purge us and to prune us so that our life will become more and more and more fruitful. Until ultimately we reach a point where God is giving maximum glory from our life. I want you to jot down these five words somewhere in your Bible on a piece of paper somewhere that you will remember them. Here is God's goal for your life. You want to know what it is as a Christian? What is God doing right now in me? Why all the hardships? Why all the struggles? Why this? Why that? What's, what is God up to? Here it is. Five words. Maximum yield for maximum glory. Maximum yield for maximum glory. That's what God is doing in your life right now. Now, unless you can say in all honesty, I have achieved maximum yield, there is no possible way in my life that I could bear any more fruit. I am bearing the most fruit that is absolutely, eternally possible. Unless you can say that, which is nobody in here, because you're wondering. That's the process that God is still taking you through. You know what that means? Pruning. Purging. I mean, sometimes he has to dig about you in your life. I mean, sometimes he's got to, you know, apply some fertilizers to the soil. And he's got to disrupt some things. And I mean, sometimes, you know, there may be an infection in the plant. And, and so God's got to come and he's got to do some, some, some surgery, as it were. And why? Because God wants maximum yield for maximum glory. That's what he's doing. Here it is, my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. I believe our prayer ought to be every day, Lord, help me to be more fruitful. I've only come so far. I know there's farther that I can go. I know there's more that I can do. I know there's more in my life that needs to change. I know there's more about Christ that I need to put on. I know there's more sin that I need to put off. I know there's more in my mind that needs to be renewed. I know there's more... God, help me to bear more fruit. That ought to be our prayer every single day. Don't be content with the level of fruitfulness that you have. Don't be satisfied with how far you've come until God is getting the most fruit from your life possible. I think we need to grow some grapes and vegetables for God's glory. You know what I'm talking about? Remember the, the 12 spies went in again? Twelve men went to spy on them. Ten were bad, and two were good. Y'all aren't doing the hand motions with <laughs> Ten bad, two good. It took me seven years to be able to figure that out. <laughs> the, the twelve went to spy on Canaan, and they came back. And uh, oh, they said, "Oh, it's a great land. It's awesome. You know, full of milk and honey." Uh, but there's giants there. Ten of them said, "We can't do it." <coughs> Only Joshua and Caleb said, "Forget about the giants. God is with us." All right. 
But what did they bring back with them? Do you remember one of the things they brought back as a demonstration of how fruitful the land was? They brought back a single cluster of grapes that was so massive, they had to hang it on a pole and two men carried it. All right, if, if you ever went to Sunday school and studied that, you probably saw that in the flannel graph or on the handout or something like that. It's just the perfect image of how fruitful the land of Canaan was. Folks, we need some of that in our lives. We need some grapes of Eshbal. We're like, well, I've got an apple or two. Let's not be satisfied until God is getting maximum glory from our lives. And then notice, what, what is this fruit? We've touched on this in the past, but let me just review. What, what, what do we mean when we say fruit? What, what does that mean? Well, fruit is whatever God produces in our lives. This is what we're talking about here. It's the produce of the Holy Spirit. And there's several different flavors, if you will, of the fruit that the Bible talks about. And first of all, there's the fruit of the Spirit, like Galatians chapter 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, weakness, temperance. Against such there is no law. These are all godly actions and attitudes that God wants to produce in your life. You can't produce it yourself. God has to produce it. And really, that describes the process of our personal sanctification, how God changes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we are conformed into the image of Christ as we behave more like Jesus day than day by day. Are you behaving like Jesus? In every way? In all of your thoughts, in all of your words, in all of your actions? Not yet. The Christian life is about changing to get rid of the bad, to add on this Christ-likeness so that God gets more and more glory from, from our lives and our fruitfulness. Then that works its way out in the fruits of service as we serve one another, as we praise God, as we, as we are involved in the work of the ministry. That is all God working through us to produce results. And then there's the fruit of souls. The Bible says that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Our, our lack of evangelism is not primarily a problem of activity. It's a problem of abiding. Because when we're abiding with Christ as we should, he works through us to influence other people. God wants maximum yield for maximum glory. And notice the last phrase Jesus said this in verse number 8 of John 15. So shall you be my disciples. Now let's be clear what Jesus is not saying. Some might read into this that Jesus is saying in order to be saved and go to heaven, you have to produce fruit. That's not what he's saying. We've already covered the fact that we don't produce the fruit in the first place. It's he that produces it in us. We are saved because we have placed our faith in Christ and he has saved us. That's why we're saved. We've been grafted into the vine. Use another biblical illustration. So what do you mean when you say, so shall you be my disciple? Bear much fruit, glorify the Father, so shall you be my disciple. Well, you've got to understand the word disciple here. Sometimes we use it as a synonym for saved or Christian, but the word itself is actually the idea of an apprentice. We don't, we don't do a lot of this in our culture today, but it used to be that the way you learned a trade was to become an apprentice to someone. 
you would go and you would uh, basically work for free for somebody for a number of years while they taught you the trade. And as an apprentice, you were doing two things. You were, first of all, learning, and then second of all, you were doing. You know, our culture is kind of separating these things out a little bit. I don't know that it's been the greatest thing. We've created an education system that's all about learning, and then we have a workforce that's all about doing, and never the twain shall meet, <laughs> it seems like. But yeah, for most of the world's history, it was a combination of learning and doing. When you see the word disciple here, think apprentice. Someone who is working under a master to learn and to do. That's what a disciple is. What Jesus is saying here is that if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not on the path of a true disciple because you're not learning and doing. You may have a head full of facts from the Bible, but if you're not doing them, you're not a disciple of Christ. You may have been church 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, but if you're not bearing fruit, you're not on the path of a true disciple. You are wandering by, you are withering, your life will be wasted. If you're not bearing fruit more and more, then you're not behaving like a true disciple of Jesus. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're not acting like it. Understand this morning that you can be saved and not act like it? There's a lot of times we do things that contradict our profession of faith in Christ. They contradict who we are in Christ. That doesn't match up. If I say I'm a Christian and I lie and I steal and I cheat, it doesn't mean I lose my salvation. It means that I'm not behaving like a Christian should behave. And if you are not bearing fruit in your life more and more, then you're not behaving like a true disciple of Jesus. Jesus said, so shall you be my disciples. Turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 14. I want to warn you, don't romanticize the idea of being a disciple of Jesus. Some people have the idea that being a disciple of Jesus means... You know, I'll, I'll follow him and life will be wonderful. You know, I'll follow Jesus and I'll never get sick again. I'll follow Jesus. I'll have all the money that I want. I'll follow Jesus and people will like me. I'll follow Jesus and no bad thing will ever happen to me. And the people that have gone around selling that false gospel have sold a bill of goods. It's, it's, it's fake. I want to I give you the reality of it from Luke chapter 14 what Jesus said about being a disciple of his. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Look at verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. There's a reality about being a disciple of Jesus. It means sacrifice and suffering. I, 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 know, I know we don't like to talk about it because quite frankly... It doesn't sound very appealing. 
Because, you know, we think of it in terms of if we were to give an invitation at the end of a gospel message and say, now I want to invite everybody in this room to sacrifice and suffer. I want to invite everybody in this room to hate your mother and father. Now, Jesus did not mean to literally despise them and treat them badly. But what he meant was you have to love God more than anything else. Or if we were to say, I want to invite everybody in this room to pick up an implement of execution and carry it around. That's what a cross was. Few people would respond to that. And we hear this language and we think, really? Yes, really. To be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ means you are going to experience suffering and sacrifice. So why is that good? Why is that okay? Because the suffering and the sacrifice is just one side of it. You know what the other side is? Eternal life. Peace. Comfort. Joy. Satisfaction. Fulfillment. And Satan loves to distract us one way or the other. He loves to get us off on one error where we would say, oh, just come to Jesus and he'll just fix everything in your life and nothing will ever go wrong. No, that's not true. Or on the other side, he'll say, don't you dare come to Jesus because your life will be miserable and you'll never get to do anything fun and God will just ruin all your plans. That's not true either. The truth is that being a follower of Jesus means walking in his steps, which often were steps of suffering and steps of sacrifice, because they were steps that took him to the cross. But through the cross comes eternal life. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are saved from our sins by grace through faith. And through the cross, we find peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. Ultimately, a fruitless life is a life of turmoil, of agitation, of frustration. It's a life of no peace because you're not following the path of a true disciple. Say, so, yeah, but if I... If I live for God's glory, I'm not going to get to do the stuff I want to do. I'll tell you this. That may or may not be true. But even if it were true that, that to follow Jesus meant you'd never get to do anything else that you wanted to do, it would still be worth it. Why? Because you would experience a joy and a satisfaction that you can't even fathom. You think your plans are going to make you happy. You think your plans are the path to peace. You think your plans are the answer to your problem, and the truth is they're not. Only God's plan is. As you follow Jesus, you find that the sacrifice and the suffering brings you to a place of peace and fulfillment. And it's the only way to be at peace in your heart and at peace with God and at peace with others. And it is through that life, the life of sacrifice and suffering, of following the steps of the Savior, of being an apprentice to Him, that God gets the most glory. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you from the writing of the Apostle Paul that this was not just a message that Jesus preached. 
It was a message that Jesus lived. Philippians chapter 2. Verse number 5. Jesus said, let this mind be in you. Well, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. Have you ever stopped to think about that? In light of John chapter 15, think about this. Jesus took on himself branchness. He became branchified. He became like one of us. He made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. You know, you know what God's saying there, right? He's saying that to be human means that you're a servant and you have no reputation. That, that's pretty humble. <laughs> and that's what Jesus took on him. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. How can you go any lower? Here's how Jesus went lower. By being lifted up on the cross. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And if we were to stop right there, we would say, What a tragic end. What a waste. But it doesn't stop there. Wherefore God also had highly exalted him. And have given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, here it is, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. And then he said, let me show you what that looks like. It means dying to yourself. It means sacrifice. It means suffering. It means letting God work His plan through your life, even though it means a cross. Because only through that way will God get the ultimate glory. That's what Jesus said. That's how Jesus lived. And if we're going to be His followers, that's how we must live too. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord's message this morning. And if the Holy Spirit has been dealing in your heart about specific ways that you need to respond, then I want you to go ahead and have that conversation with God now. But maybe you're still thinking to yourself, okay, what do I need to do in light of this truth? Let me suggest a few things. First of all, let me suggest that you give God the glory that He deserves in your life, in your own heart this morning. When was the last time 
you just said, God, you're so good. God, you're so great. You're so much higher than me. You're so much more powerful than me. God, you alone deserve glory. When's the last time you did that? you to do that right now. Praise God. Give him the glory that he deserves. Let me suggest another thing. Maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you that you've been taking some of God's glory for yourself. It may have been just a tiny amount in your opinion, but any amount is too much. You need to repent of that. You need to confess it to God today. That God, I have been taking the glory that is it's yours. I've been taking some of it for myself. You've been embezzling God's glory. You need to confess it. And then let me give you one other suggestion how to respond to the message today. Are you praying that God will make you more fruitful? Or are you content with how far you've come and just kind of live life on cruise control? Our life is supposed to be some fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Let's not stop at the lower level. Let's let God keep working through us so that we're bearing more and more fruit. I want to invite you to ask God today to make you more for